0: Empathy is knowing your own darkness. Word It has power. Like, without that ask. connection, you don't have anything. What's
1: the opposite of addiction? Just freedom. Well, <laughs> hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Finding Peaks. I am your host, the best of hosts, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, Brandon Burns, joined again today by. Jason Friesma, Chief Clinical Officer, Clint Nicholson, Chief Operating Officer. Nailed the titles. I messed that up a few episodes ago with uh, Dr. Ryan. I actually, I called him the Chief Clinical Officer. He loved that. Yeah, and, it is uh, not a promotion. he, he, he just had a, a, lateral? a yeah, shaking yeah. Lateral. of his head that was not uh, approving in any way. So uh, welcome back, everybody, though. I'm excited to be here one of the things we've been talking about you know across finding peaks episodes we've kind of just been dropping it in there a few minutes at a time is this notion of addiction and removing it as language from our industry and the benefits that would follow from that we want to hunker down a little bit more into that uh, concept today and uh, focus in on why we are trying to push that language aside and really make a claim that this is a mental health issue and it is not about the drugs in that way. And uh, I've been talking about it with our leadership team, trying to throw this, I'm gonna gonna hit the kids at home. Have any of you seen the movie A Scanner Darkly? Yes or no? It's one of Keanu Reeves' best monologue movies ever made. Anyways, I'm not (laughs) recommending the movie because it is deep and it is dark and it is about drugs and addiction and a variety of these things, but there's this scene When they pull over to the side of the road, and Winona Ryder's in the movie, Woody Harrelson, um, Keanu Reeves, all the best people, and they're pulled over, and the car is broken down, and Keanu Reeves gets out of the car and he goes, we got to stop doing the drugs, it's messing with our brains. And Woody Harrelson walks over and says, man, it's not about the drugs, don't blame the drugs. And so I want to use that clip as the sort of transition here that... I feel strongly about what we talk about when we say push this word addiction to the side and let's talk about it as mental health because the drugs is this external thing it's a feature of, the, of our internal condition and why some people use it more than others and why people become <coughs> addicted to it um, you know differentiates across the public and our culture and for those reasons, it feels like it's not about that there's some condition I think even when we go to you know dr. Alardi's tapes a few weeks ago and the the work we were able to do with him you know that dopaminergic effect Mm -hmm. is lacking in individuals at times compared so one person can have less less of that effect than another person so this person experiences the world in sort of a more mundane less excited way when I look at the mountains I get a dopamine kick when that person looks at the mountains they don't we both arrived to a party that night we both do drugs and yeah I get excited about the drugs but I put it down and for this person in the way that I look at the mountains uh, for that episode, they're now excited about it uh, in that way. And now they have that effect. And what we gathered from that is that this person over here is more vulnerable uh, than the other individuals who are, you know, are, and more susceptible in that way. So again, it feels like there's a prior condition. It could be trauma, emotional dysregulation, a variety of different fancy words in the clinical world that uh, you will have better access to to explain than I do, but, um, let's keep moving that needle in that direction because it feels important, and I think it feels important for what we do as a treatment uh, center. So I know, Clinton, you are uh, most prepared at any given time to want (laughs) to dislodge that word from the culture. And so I think let's just do some foundational stuff, catch all the kids and the families up to speed on why we're talking about this. And um, so why do we need to get rid of this word? Okay. So getting rid of the word addiction. well, let's
2: start with the stigma, right? So there's a, a huge stigma around addiction, and the way in which we've talked about addiction and treated addiction culturally uh, for really the last hundred years is that it is this sort of—it's um, a treatable disease, but is terminal, and it's in the sense that once an addict, always an addict. Um, also, that it is about um, there's a there's a sense of um, Willpower that is sort of talked about in the sense that there's a lack of that willpower or a lack of um, real agency for if you do have an addiction or are an addict, uh, there are moral implications as well that there is a lack of um, sort of uh, I don't know moral um, a moral solid moral foundation that allows you to become susceptible and that's the reason why you become an addict. Um, there are so many misunderstandings and misinterpretations that, are, um, that have really just sort of muddied the waters, and at the very least made the field of um, substance use treatment extremely convoluted and very disengaged from the rest of the behavioral health uh, treatment community and treatment world. We've really, when, even in, when you go to graduate school, you can be a clinical mental health counselor or you can be an addiction counselor. Like there's, all, there's two separate tracks even within, even though both of these are all mental, there's still mental health under the big umbrella, but they actually separate them out and you go down a different track if you go to grad school. And because of that, we have a, a lot of disparity, I believe, in the way in which addicts are, or addiction is treated. And again, the, when, we, when we bring up this word addiction, we're bringing up so much baggage with it that it, I think what we usually end up doing is spending almost all of our time just going through the baggage and never actually getting to the root. Um, if you think about uh, substance use, the reality of substance use is it is first and foremost a coping strategy. Right? It's a way of coping with the world. Mm-hmm. And it's just a very maladaptive one. Right. Yeah. Also, very effective. Right. Right? It's, it's immediate, it's consistent, and it works. Yeah. Also, it destroys your life in the process. But it's a coping strategy. You know, just like anything else in the, in the world is, mm-hmm. uh, just like hiking is a coping strategy. Right. Right? Deep breathing is a coping strategy. Yeah. Drinking is a coping strategy. Right. They're all along the same lines. But because we have this concept of addiction, we treat this coping strategy differently and all of the sudden, the use of that coping strategy becomes the individual's identity. And I think that's where we, uh, again, run into another huge barrier.
1: Yeah, and, and, a, and a couple inserts there you know, for folks at home that uh, don't see it as a coping strategy or a reasonable coping strategy, I think there's um I'm just going to call it half of Americans sitting in their offices, their cubicles, whatever, at home today, thinking I'm going to get that drink tomorrow on Friday yeah, night. Absolutely. I've been working my butt off all week. I'm deserving of it. I'm going to go home, and chill, I'm going to have a six pack, I'm going to lay out, I'm going to watch the right. game. Got a lot of playoff things going on. In those sort of ways, we don't talk about it as a society, but we are literally using that opportunity at the end of the week, that happy hour session or whatever, to cope with the things. Yeah. And we almost create a narrative that we're deserving of it absolutely. on top yeah. of that. right? Yeah uh as well too and then a, you know another pivot into i always talk with you know you know patients at, at work you know who at least you know make it to my office and you know I, I love running but i think for anybody who would see a common runner down the road i think we look okay runner they're healthy they're doing a healthy thing i think we've looked at runners in society and said that's really unhealthy at some point, you, we become sickly because we run so much, and there's consequences associated with that. I think we look at people who are you know muscular, and we see that as a healthy thing in a coping mechanism. But then we look at some people who are muscular and we're like, "I think we've exceeded this as a coping, as a reasonable coping mechanism uh, in that way, and so just wanted to. I think highlight just some examples for the, those who might yeah. disengage already from the episode and right. thinking that it's not and, a common. Well,
2: to your earlier point, right? This idea of, of vulnerability. I mean, there are people that can have a glass of wine at night as part of a coping strategy, right? It's a mm-hmm. way to sort of release, kind of come down from the day, to just sort of relax, uh, help enhance your meal, what have you. Um, and that is a perfectly adaptive coping strategy, mm-hmm. right? However, there are those with susceptibilities and vulnerabilities that do not have that same adaptive approach to substance use. So the coping strategy becomes maladaptive, Mm -hmm. right? But they're both, regardless, still coping strategies, right? right? It's still a way of processing, engaging, or um, sort of coming to terms with the day or with your life, uh, sort of through external
1: means, Mm -hmm. essentially. Got it. And I don't know how much you want to piggyback off this or state more about it, but I think you know in the past episodes we've done together. You know, you've parsed out how, Jason as well too, how we've gone from not just addiction of drugs and alcohol, but then there's sex addiction and there's mm-hmm. gambling addiction and all of these other add addictions that are starting to take place. Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, I think it, it, it seems more reasonable to draw it back down to, these are all potentially coping strategies. Absolutely. And, but yeah. the way that we're actually looking at, they're maladaptive coping strategies. And when we start using other language, it feels more reasonable and sensible to stop stating addiction that is the case
0: yeah and i think <clears throat> the coping strategy implies that something needs to be coped with which is i think what you were talking yep. about as well and you know you listed the kind of process addictions if you will and then you know substance addiction uh when we begin to look at it as a maladaptive maladaptive coping mechanism then we then we can see that those behaviors aren't function a person isn't functioning very well with those behaviors we get to dig deeper and figure out what um, what is driving that and then also uh, install kind of healthy coping mechanisms rather than um, viewing the addiction or that behavior itself as the primary issue.
2: Mm-hmm. And then that, oh, and I, identifying that individual as an addict, yeah, right, that,
0: as. I was gonna mention that too. Because yeah. that, that word addict, um, yeah. which, <laughs> uh, it, it's such a shaming word and, and that's, you know, that's me getting into the counselor piece, but um, it's a pejorative. Like, it is meant uh, to look down on somebody, and it is meant to look at um, some sort of moral failing or something like that, that someone has incur- has occur- incurred, rather than just kind of recognizing uh, that the coping mechanism somebody went to uh, just out not to work very well for them, even if it did help them deal with right. whatever was driving the issue.
2: Absolutely. And, I, I mean, and there's complexity to substance, use, to substance use as a coping mechanism or an added complexity because there is a physiological right. impact, yeah. it, right? Yeah. And so you, then all of a sudden, so it does become more complex to mm-hmm. a certain degree right. rather than something like, um, I don't know, deep breathing, right? right? Because you do have these physiological components where you start to develop things like dependence, you suffer from things like withdrawals, I mean, so there are complexities to it. At the same time, I think when we talk about adaptive and maladaptive coping strategies, again, we choose to look at the behaviors and then the underlying reasons or motivations towards movement towards those behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to, again, really dig deep and really get to the core of the issue rather than getting stuck on these sort of like moral failings or these labels or um, kind of pejorative identities.
1: Yeah, in the, I mean, to the physiological, you know, brain aspect and point of it too. I mean, one, thank God for neuroplasticity. At least in this yeah. moment, there is an opportunity to create new neural frameworks around um, what is already formed in that regard. But, you know, the the thing that I think I want to say about it is, and the challenge around it is that even though that's there and it's maladaptive as a coping mechanism the person is suffering and so they want to deploy skill sets into the world that will alleviate that in some sort of way and to me that nagging physiological brain state is just a strong tug in that direction because we've sure. been so we've we've told the brain every single time i brought it up several times on this episode you know i got a trigger i insert a drug i got a trigger i insert a drug well you take away the drugs you're still being triggered at all times and then where are you putting that energy to over time you know help and heal the brain in that sort of way so I certainly don't want to take away. I don't think any of us do that. There's this nagging brain state now Absolutely. left over from the event of uh, the events over time that have caused what we call addiction today. Um, but to be clear, it's a pull in a direction of maladaptive uh, behaviors, right? Rather than um, it being the core issue. It starts with the core issue, the thing that needs to be supportive, mm-hmm. um, the trigger, and then the tug in that direction. So without putting too many words on it, like that is. Cr- Correct right, that yeah.
0: is the what I think <clears throat> as you were talking, Brandon, I was just thinking about how um, if we kind of look at depression I, I find there to be a significant parallel how when somebody is depressed, it is really hard to get out of bed, and sometimes they don't get out of bed and and we can judge that all we want. Um, and I and I think that's where we begin to find some correlation that like depression, other anxiety, uh, other mental health issues have behavioral components that make us feel like hey, if you just stop, get out of bed, and yeah. you'll be okay, or stop pacing, or just go to sleep at night, or whatever. And and when people are really wrestling with with um, other mental health issues other than uh, substance use, it, there can still be that um, these underlying behaviors that still need to be addressed, and then the underlying issues underneath them and and for some reason it's really easy I think for us to be like okay somebody's depressed let's find the thing in the items that are kind of driving that depression and the behaviors of not getting out of bed but we we've lost some of that curiosity um, with addiction although I I think it's coming back or with uh, substance use Yeah, yeah Sorry.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Great correction. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Good save. <laughs> yeah. Good save. I was yeah. shaming you.
1: Yeah. I was <laughs> shaming you. We yeah. we have to do away <laughs> with the word. Port. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> At some point in this episode, yeah. you will know, well bleep too. it out. Can we just start bleeping it yeah. like like it's a bad word? Yeah. So yeah. you know when we when we trauma and somatic experience and all of the, um, it, it could be a whole another episode in of itself. But it seems like there is a major bend toward trauma as integrated care within treatment episodes uh in that regard and i think that's telling you know we get a lot of phone calls to peaks and people say oh well they didn't deal with the trauma in the past episode that's why these things continue to occur if we're translating that right it's person experiences something trauma caused uh, you know emotional dysregulation under certain conditions they experience that moment and then that strong tug in this direction uh, pulls them, you know, back into that addictive cycle uh, in that way of things. But if if that's true, again, then we're working on the mental health issue that Absolutely. is trauma, um, the a dimensional three ASAM criteria, not the drugs in and of itself. Right? There's no there's no therapeutic intervention of like let's create um you know kind of like what emdr does maybe a backward dive into an awareness around the trauma like we don't bring the drugs front and center in that regard i guess some treatment protocols might call for that in some environments but again it just seems like it takes it it always reverts back to a causal you know rudimentary mental health issue and then the drugs are an external maladaptive strategy to that internal issue it never feels like in all of the times that I've met patient care and family systems, that the thing we're working on is that physiological brain state. Right. Um, and we work on coping strategies around those cravings because they do exist uh, at the end of the day. But um, even that seems to get away from it being about the drug itself. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Well, I was
0: just gonna say, I mean, I can think of people very, very recently at peaks you know, who literally it, it seems to occur with some of the our, our younger clients who um, maybe haven't developed some of the other coping mechanisms that we've talked about. But they come in and their substance is removed, and then they're like, "I can't stop thinking about my trauma. I'm just getting these flashbacks." Or I don't it, like the correlation is blatantly obvious uh, with some people um, that maybe are a little less defended or don't have other. Uh, kind of strategies for dealing with it or for masking their trauma. Like there's some people that just literally are like, I quit using or I quit drinking and all I have is trauma. And this doesn't make life worth living. Right. We we look at those people in the eye all the time.
2: And they and those people oftentimes is, I mean once 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 you've taken away that coping strategy uh, and you sort of expose the the wound underneath, whatever that whatever that wound may be um, that's also a really high risk time for people to run, right? Like for for leaving against medical advice or against clinical advice, because all of a the sudden there's exposure, right? And they, and because the, there are no coping strategies that or adaptive mechanisms that have been added to sort of help soothe um, the per, and help the person sort of cope with those uh, with those really highly acute and, um, and and really overwhelming emotions. People, will, the brain. Literally tells you to go and do drugs because that's what will make me feel better, and that's that's the really tricky thing about substance use as a coping mechanism. There is that physiological tug that takes months, years sometimes to actually um, to mitigate to the point of where you don't, where the risk of relapse is actually significantly lowered. Um, it it's, it makes it. It's also what makes substance use and, and um, one of the most highly acute mental health diagnoses because there is this physiological component mm-hmm. to the coping strategy that has to be dealt with alongside the clinical or um, behavioral health, emotional component, psychological component. And trying to do those two things at the same time becomes very complex. It's, it's very difficult and it's one of the reasons I think that um, th- the treatment in general for substance use uh, if, if they're not treated at the same time together is
1: so unsuccessful. Yeah. yeah. And maybe you guys can help me out with this analogy. It's been a while before I've thought about it, but it's coming up for me here. And this like a dia- Diabetes is often like a sort of side-by-side analogy of addiction. And we have um, two individuals in need of stopping, one using drugs and one eating in you know, a certain way or... Um, needing to readdress their lifestyles to maintain a healthy life you know, moving forward. Uh, and curious, uh, from your guys' perspectives, how accurate that is, because I believe I've heard it in some conferences and some special settings before, but also as well, too, that it, what, what I hope to do is diffuse this notion of like, it's the drugs over here, because for the diabetic over here, it's this poor eating habits and it's these foods. Well. For both these individuals, the diabetic has to figure out a way to move away from those behaviors of the foods that are causing the, you know, disrupting the insulin levels and all that sort of thing within the body. Um, But for that individual as well too, there's a reason in which like those food uh, eating habits have become maladaptive, and they need to find those um, better suited ways, especially with this new condition, for going about their world that's in front of them. Uh, so i bring it up because again as as a mechanism of diffusion of these external things when really you have this internal suffering in the individual and just as difficult as it is to ignore that tug the diabetic still has to ignore that tug towards the unhealthy eating habits
0: yeah i think um to be clear it's type 2 diabetes you're referring okay to not type most, 1 or, yeah type 1 get that in there uh, so type, with. Yeah. yeah type 2 <laughs> just to be clear and, I, and i've heard the same metaphor and um You know because i think the metaphor comes from uh you know that type 2 diabetes uh there's a component that is behaviorally driven right like um and that can be that it can be behaviorally controlled uh earlier in my career i worked for um, the pharmaceutical company eli lilly um, who actually i believe is the company that uh, developed insulin uh first and so they out of indianapolis and they um still are a leading researcher on uh, diabetes medication and so part of our training we had just tons of uh, patient um, information and behavioral interventions and all this mental health stuff that we would uh, provide to endocrinologists and uh, and primary uh, care physicians because compliance with a healthy diet or even just taking insulin or measuring uh, blood sugar uh, was quite low and oftentimes people would change their behaviors as soon as they started to feel better, or started as, rather than realizing that it was the meds that were helping them. And so I think the, the metaphor m- makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Um, and then I think uh, in other ways, it doesn't make sense, but I'll volley it over to you, Clint. <laughs> <laughs> Out that was, wow. <laughs> yeah. that was yeah, more of a slide. Yeah,
2: it does make sense, go. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, um... Where the the hole in the metaphor for me is at what point do you ask the diabetic why why are you eating like this right like why has, why have you developed a diet that has led to what is noticeably um, negative consequences yeah. and continued to engage in that diet regardless of the fact that you know that you're hurting yourself right that's to me at that point. Um, and Unless you ask that question, you lose the metaphor, but I think once you ask that question, all of a sudden you start to align with somebody who struggles with substance use because you 're looking at maladaptive coping strategies right but you don 't get to a maladaptive coding, coping strategy until you ask for the question "Why and get to motivation right that 's if you don 't know what you 're coping with then then you 're not really talking about coping strategies anymore and you, it comes more towards again uh, it's a moral deficit it's a lack of self-control it's a lack of willpower uh, lack of self-respect you know that's all of these very shamy um narratives that start to pop up and um and, and so i think that when you get rid of going back to the original question right when you get rid of the word addiction and or when you get rid of these sort of very uh and the word addict Um, you you eliminate the shame shadow, right? And all of a sudden, you can start to see things much, much more clearly. Because it's just about seeking out why is the behavior, what need is that behavior meeting, right? (coughs) Um, Really building insight into that motivation. And then slowly, over time, developing alternative coping strategies that are much more adaptive and that more align with the person's well-being and their desire to get better. Right? Things get very clear at that point. Right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we're not, up, we're not caught up in this 100-plus year narrative of, oh, well, you know, I have, uh, I've lost all control in my life, and now I need to hand myself over to a higher power in order to regain it. It's like uh, you know, the higher power component is actually meeting a different need as well. That is really getting to that is probably to some degree when it works answering part of that why are you doing this question mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, but again I think that we we complicate things right right and addiction and the an addict as concepts are more than anything just
1: complicators yeah yeah and we've done. Uh... Uh, you know kind of trailing down to the end of the episode here we 've talked about it um, not that it this should be word, language that 's continually deployed in the world it 's certainly shame based but out of the rooms comes this language of the dry drunk mm-hmm. uh, and the individual who 's been absent of drugs and alcohol for some time period but has this sort of my real from it is that there's significant emotional dysregulation still, there's still anger, there's still, you know, shame, there's still sadness, there's still all these other sort of things. And I think um, the language should not be used, but for the sake of the conversation, it's, it's pointing at the real problem. Absolutely. You know, in the absence of alcohol, I still have to live with this. Yeah. I still have to live within this world. Right. And people are looking at me in a way to get this terrible language, dry, drunk, because I may be without alcohol, but I seem just as miserable as if I were on, on alcohol. It's white knuckling right. is yeah. another term, right?
0: Or the, the coping mechanism just shifted from alcohol to AA without any addressing any of the actual root cause.
2: Right. And then not to discredit the 12-step world and the 12-step process, because you know that can be part of the coping strategies that replace um, this, the maladaptive ones. It can be very adaptive and also help to really develop insight. Um, but it doesn't necessarily get to the very heart of the matter, right? Like it, there are layers upon layers that need to be addressed um, with any mental health diagnosis, right? And um, stopping at sort of the mid, the like high mid layer is is for some people it's just not enough. For some, maybe, you know, for some people it's they are very successful in twelve step world and um, are able to utilize that platform to develop to both gain insight and develop more adaptive coping strategies.
0: I think we would be remiss, too, if we didn't mention that there's a stigma with mental health in general. Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're trying to get addiction just to get to be on par with mental health. But there's already a stigma on top of that. Um, Because there is a stigma about being weak if you're depressed or 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 weak-minded around your trauma and all of that. That part just feels really important as part of this discussion. Is that we're we're fighting an uphill battle with this word addiction, but there's also an uphill battle, kind of in general, with the culture, with mental health uh, stigmatization. Yeah,
2: it's like we're just trying to work deal with one stigma instead of two,
1: right? Right. Because we get to the one, (laughs) (laughs) let's just drop it down. And and that's that's important, and certainly we could talk about that uh, for at length as well too. But I, I. on, on the way out here, I think that the thing that I want to talk about as well, too, is because we run into individuals, say, who come to us with opioid use disorder, opioid addiction in the language of it. Right. And then we say something like, well, what does drinking look like for you? I actually drink very little. I care very little for it. Right. They're explaining whether or not it's adaptive or healthy over here, that it's a non-issue. Right and that the issue is this, but it's it's a maladaptive behavior for some you know other core issue. And in that way of things, it feels like what we also wanna eliminate, I wanna be very careful about this, but addiction in that regard isn't abstinence forever. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And I think this is wildly new territory, Mm -hmm. uh, especially within a stabilization phase. We're probably not going to talk about this side of stuff. This is aftercare, (laughs) you know, sort of therapeutic approaches to this. But um, to be addicted to all things just because of this in this way, even though this thing isn't actually a maladaptive feature in one's life, um, it seems like it helps us move away from these abstinence-based concepts as well, too. And I think... You know the the light tone i want to put on it is if i'm 21 years old and i have this opioid use disorder issue and i walk into a treatment center and they say addicted to this and abstinence forever there's an unreasonableness that um, if i'm putting myself in their shoes that comes with that way i just turned 21 I'm, it's actually not a thing i can't even remember the last time i drank i'm just really stuck in this thing right now and it starts to Um, change the potential for the individual that's in that chair and provide greater opportunities under those healthy uh, coping mechanisms. That if it is the drink in the individual situation in the future, I've dealt with this emotional dysregulation instead of going to the bar for happy hour because I'm angry at work, I dealt with that anger about work before I got to the bar um, as an experience. And it, I think is more supportive of individuals, especially young adults who are just in vulnerable positions and have to live the rest of their lives uh, in that way and can't really foresee themselves way out in the future not doing other things that their friends are doing and the other things that their friends are doing aren't opioids at this time
2: well and again i think that that just highlights this the 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 issue with saying that well you have an addiction so now you're an addict right like now you have this terminal thing that becomes part of your identity that you never get rid of and you'll forever have to deal with and no matter how old you are whether you're 21 or you're 75, you will wear the scarlet letter forever it's really disheartening mm-hmm. right it's extremely overwhelming and it, to, and again, like this is th- there's a lot of nuance here, but right. it's, it's inaccurate mm-hmm. in a lot of ways um, For some people, that concept of uh, abstinence is just absolutely necessary, and it's what they need, and it's what works for them. And we are in uh, a lot of our programming has is rooted in abstinence, right? Like the, especially at the stabilization period, because we do have the brain does have to heal, right? And it is, and there again we talk about vulnerability that you are still vulnerable to replace one with another, like one maladaptive coping strategy with another maladaptive coping strategy, and that could be substance replacing one substance with another. So all of these risks are very real. And of course, uh, again, uh, very nuanced conversation, very, um, y- yeah, it could be pretty volatile, I think, to a certain degree, depending on who you're talking to. Um, but it does highlight this idea of, uh, of one of the, the major problems with this idea of addiction is that I have an addiction. Now I'm an addict, and I'm an addict forever.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, you know, the, the charitable takeaways from a conversation like this as well too is that I think the goal in early treatment is not to discourage people about their future opportunities but to engage them in the suffering that brought them to a program Absolutely. like ours in the first place. And somebody comes in and says, I have, I have this opioid use disorder and we label them as an addict right away. That can be language that will immediately, they'll pull the eject button, they AMA. It's language in the way of the opportunity uh, at times, and that feels full circle to me. Unless, Jason, you want to drop the mic on something here on your way out. Or just another layup that's yeah. Clinton, Really uncomfortable. <laughs> Clinton, volleyball spike, yeah, yeah.
0: I don't. The only thing I wanted to follow up with uh, about for, was just with the young people, the heroin addict drinking again to me, if we look underneath that, you know, what drives a lot of addiction, or at least a symptom of it, is certainly this isolation and this hidden life. And so, you know, to me, my new my language that I've wanted to develop over the last, you know, few years of my career too is just if you're open with people, you trust, and uh, it isn't hidden, and then you're honest with yourself about whatever comes up for you along your path. The, that feels like kind of a, a way to progressively have those conversations instead of. Um, because what, unfortunately what I watch in the abstinence culture is like if somebody begins to dabble or they want to try an edible or something we're in Colorado after all you know three years into their recovery journey they have to like disappear or hide it and to me that is that's where I think you know significant relapse can be fostered is in that secrecy and silence and all that I think but being open and transparent uh, to me feels like the answer to a lot of that
1: yeah dig it
2: yeah and I think f- just for me I, I, well i'm really passionate about this topic obviously like I and at the same time, I recognize that it is um, it's a tough conversation to have, and I think uh, it can be just having this conversation a lot of people are going to disagree with me and again, this is a very nuanced topic um, and I'm speaking uh, with maybe a tone of certainty, but obviously there there's no right answer in this situation I think that for me, what I hope for is that we have better conversations mm-hmm. that are yeah. more open, that have yeah. more room for curiosity, uh, as opposed to the sort of certainty that I think we've approached um, substance use and this concept of addiction with in the past.
1: Yeah. And in, because of these nuances, and I've stated in multiple episodes as well, too, we have the concept of trigger, and we do drugs, and trigger, and do drugs. The initial mistake, at least in my belief, around early recovery concepts within treatment is somebody thinks, okay, trigger, it's not going to be opioids, but I'm, I can have a drink. Right. You know, that's the problem. You're just inserting the new maladaptive feature. It's right. trigger Absolutely. emotional dysregulation. Go to a therapist. Go to, a, you know, go to somebody to talk to that about, to right. work through that issue on. And then over time, gives us a new opportunity as the brain heals around the opioid originally to go, okay... I was triggered, I did the deep breathing, got emotionally regulated, I feel good in this moment, now I'm gonna go have a drink. And I'm gonna do it in a public space and I'm not gonna hide from it, I'm gonna have support. And then I'm gonna take that experience maybe back to a therapist and somebody of accountability. right? So just parsing that out a little bit so we don't leave the (laughs) viewers with like, yeah, yeah, this has to be done intelligently and we have to take it quite seriously because people die um, resulting from uh maybe miscommunicating some of these features along the way Uh, at the same time there's a it's worthwhile it feels like to figure out a way to kind of push this language aside and focus on what is the real issue and for us at peaks that's mental health Mm -hmm. so with that everybody on the other side of the screen here thank you for going through this with us if you've got questions thoughts heated concerns about what we just spoke about in this episode uh finding peaks at peaksrecovery.com we love hearing your feedback. Uh, we love even hearing frustrated feedback at times, so send us all of that. Uh, check us out on the Facebooks, the Instagrams, the Twitters, all of those special things. Follow Chris Burns and Peaks Recovery and his journey uh, as he goes about that. A lot of energy, but a lot of um, great energy around recovery. Uh, it's fun to follow in that regard. Uh, join him, I think he's on next week uh, as the host, and then Frisma will be like two weeks from now, but. It's yeah. kind of the mediocre yeah. host, so we'll Bate just... it. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there it is. Anyways, we're taking jabs here on Peaks. We're trying to have a good time. Love you all very much. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, signing off.